Hey, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists, and you're listening to Global Caveat. <laughs> Diana, can you believe that this is the second year of our podcast? I know because last year felt like five years, seven years. I don't know. So I don't know we're, how we're time is anymore. I don't know. We're technically is. in the 13th month of 2020 or something like that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but yes, other than it being the second year, we have really exciting news. And yes. um, yeah, who, do you want to say it? Should I say it? You should say it. I should say it. Okay. So we are finally, 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 officially a 501c3 nonprofit. It's taken forever. Um, yeah. So we were trying to figure out if we got it. And then all the holidays and everything happened. We didn't know. So then um, it's actually a funny story. Susanna, you want to yeah. tell because you did it. <laughs> <laughs> so funny story we've been we have been waiting for so long for this i don't know i don't remember when we submitted the application to the irs we filed our pa paperwork and then i think was it a couple weeks ago i was like you know what i'm just gonna google us and see if we're publicly listed as a nonprofit. and if we are that means we got the 501c3 status and yeah. i did and i think we were on page what 1200 something on the colorado nonprofit list <laughs> so um, I screenshotted awesome. that. Yeah, and I sent yeah. it to, um, you know, the team. And I was like, we got the status. <laughs> um, we still are waiting for the IRS to send us the official notice. Oh. notice but whatever. <laughs> we know. We know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but that also means now you can donate to us and get um, tax-deductible donation. Yeah. And also, that also means anyone that's donated to us in the past since we... Um, submitted it also gets a tax write-off um, nice so that's great because it's backdated yeah. to when we started um, right now I'm working on figuring out a bank account and situation so the best way to donate is by joining our patreon mm -hmm. and you also get cool info and updates by being on patreon and um, a fun sticker mm -hmm. and stuff that comes and we they're sustainable stickers they're made with like recycled material and all of that like crude stuff so it's not just like here's this final nonsense sticker um we thought about it but, but yeah you should join our patreon and help Yay. us fund to do stuff so we can stop paying 100 percent out of our pockets <laughs> yes <laughs> well with that said um we have another exciting guest on this episode we have mm -hmm. monica a native of chile she is a new york city-based community organizer sustainability educator and ecological designer since 2007. Monica is an avid gardener as a, oh, she was an avid gardener as a small child with her uh -huh. grandparents in Chile. She rekindled her passion for growing food as an adult while living in Alaska. She is committed to improving food systems while advancing social and environmental justice globally. She has dedicated her life to working with diverse and marginalized communities in education and local development in the U.S. and abroad. Monica has advanced certifications in permaculture design and teaching and serves on the board of directors for the Permaculture Institute of North America. Welcome, Monica. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you. This is wonderful. We're excited to have you. We, yeah. had, a, we had a great conversation before we introduced you and you talked about how you did some education work. It kind of sounds like your whole life has revolved around education. It really has. I've been doing community education, community education since for about 25 years. Community education has been my base of what mm -hmm. uh, the different ways that I have gotten messages across 
And then in 2007, it became the message became permaculture design and working with uh, urban agriculture and sustainability and things of that nature. Wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, so because you said a word that I feel like a lot of people don't know, I also did not know it until, you know, earlier today. Um, what is permaculture? <laughs> so, you know, I think the best definition of permaculture is permaculture is learning how to design the ways that we meet our needs in a sustainable, regenerative way. Like how do we meet our needs for food, water, energy, shelter, waste? How did we deal with waste? All these different mm. things. It's like, how can we meet our needs in a way that's a win-win for us and nature? Because in mm. permaculture, as a philosophy, the idea is that we're all connected and any idea of separation is artificial because we have learned through climate disruption, which is showing us that what happens to nature inevitably will affect us, right? We are part of nature. We are, we like to say that we are nature working mm -hmm. to try to make things better. Permaculture is a way of designing like mother nature. That's what I tell my kids because I teach all mm -hmm. ages. But when I'm working with kids, I just say, we're going to learn how to design like mother nature. And they're like, what? What does that mean? <laughs> I'm like, Don't worry. Let's get into it. Right. So yeah. it's the only design system that's based in ethics and it's care for the earth, care for people and design for abundance. Because why go sustainable when you can be abundant? Why go mm. sustainable when you can be regenerative? We are infinitely creative. Mm -hmm. And solution can be solution oriented. We can just design better ways of meeting our needs for mm -hmm. all these different things. Mm -hmm. You, the way that you describe permaculture reminds me a lot about indigenous ways of just living um, and their traditions. Mm -hmm. um, so in your own work in the communities and stuff, have you found yourself um I don't know. Yeah. What, what are the intersections that you've seen with, you know, this word, fancy word permaculture and then mm -hmm. um, indigenous, this is just like an indigenous way of living. So what I like to say about permaculture is that permaculture is, was started in, was created, co-created in California by two white male scientist academics who sat in the forest for 10 years and got data and research did research and collected data that said nature designs itself in patterns. Mm -hmm. They identified those patterns and then um, started creating what essentially was the beginning of permaculture design. Mm -hmm. So what's important about this is that before, I like to say that if it wasn't for these two dudes, we would, indigenous environmental practices and wisdom which philosophies could still be looked at as folksy, right? So we live in a Western science oriented world. So what they, these two ecologists did was they identified these patterns and then that started their foundation. And then as they went along, Bill Mollison was heavily influenced by the Maori, the indigenous people of New Zealand, Maori way of farming. So he brought that in. I think that, um, he did a huge disservice to himself and to permaculture in a way by not giving people credit for where he found the information because essentially permaculture is a design system. And then you get a toolbox. And in this toolbox, when you open it up, you're like, oh, I'm going to design something. What's in my toolbox that is site appropriate and site specific? What's in here? I have regenerative ag. I have uh, like uh, sustainable energy. I have all kinds of different things that are in this toolbox that I could use for this design. But the Part of permaculture is this lens. It's a big picture, a whole systems perspective on how to make a design 
that TIT has 80% research and 20% implementation. Because if you can do all of your research in the beginning, you're not going to, you're not going to end up with unforeseen consequences, which is one of the things that happens in our educational system that is so siloed mm-hmm. and uh, doesn't really create generalists. So one of the things that I particularly, I lived in Guatemala for a year and I, we had a community project, the school that I worked with, with, um, with a Mayan village. So I have a great, and I have friends who are indigenous. So I have a great respect for, um, indigenous cultures, what, and philosophies. And it's, and just to me, it always just made sense as I moved forward and started studying Buddhism later in my thirties. Um, and I was in Asia and India doing all kinds of different, uh, things in that realm of yoga and meditation and this and that. I started seeing the, the commonalities. I started seeing patterns and I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. And in Buddhism and Hinduism, you have this idea that we're all connected. You have this idea that, um, that there is life everywhere. This is fascinating because I'm remembering this from when I lived in Guatemala and what I was learning from my Mayan friends. So, I think that, I think that what attracted me to permaculture when I came to it was that it was based in science because it was science. It was two mm-hmm. ecologists and it was academic. And I'm like, how did they do this? They basically are giving credibility to what I've been learning for the last 20 years. This mm-hmm. is amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I appreciate about it. So I think it's important to distinguish permaculture as a, for, for example, like in my work, I enter into the school systems as a STEM course, right? Because of this background in science and mm-hmm. uh, the permaculture has. And I will bring in when I can indigenous philosophies or, or techniques or applications that support the work that we're talking about. If we're talking about natural building, it's easy for me to bring in the Pueblo Indians, right? Mm-hmm. Native Americans. If I'm bringing, if I'm talking about uh, water catchment, it's really easy for me to talk about the water catchment that was done in Jordan and Petra. Um, I actually have pictures of it because I was there. You know, there's a lot of ways that you can, that I bring in these places where it originated from. I mean, I have like two very different lines of thought that we could go down and I could go down a whole thing about white people <laughs> researching <laughs> off of other people and <laughs> making it sure. quote unquote legitimate. But that's a whole other podcast but, in itself. <laughs> right. But I think that that's really important. Right? Yeah. It's really important because the reality is if it hadn't been for those two dudes, we would not yeah. be talking about it. I would not have taught a science elective at a public high school without them. Yeah. I think, I mean, yeah, that's great that you can get to be able to teach it as a science elective and as a science course. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And getting it to just be more accept like accepted, widely accepted and integrated into mm-hmm. our world. And that's yeah. what I mean, I'm being straight up honest. That is what I tell my friends and that's what I tell my POC friends. I'm like, y'all, because of them, I can do this. Mm-hmm. If I was still basing it on what I learned about agriculture from my Mayan friends in Guatemala or what I learned in my time in in, in Asia or South Asia or the Middle East, I've been a lot of places studying and doing a lot of different things. That's not what our world, this world in the United States goes from, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I just, I give credit where credit is due and I make up for the sins as best as I can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, I think, I think yeah. you know, I have to um, recognize that, well, not recognize, but I think what you're saying is understanding the systems and structures that are in place, right? Yeah. And so not not saying that um, it was right <laughs> in the sense, no. like, 
it, is it right? Is it right that the only way that indigenous practices or practices in Asia or whatever, they are only legitimized by Western scientists? I personally, I don't think that should be the way, right? Because I mm-hmm. think there's a lot that we can learn from non-Western societies and scientists mm-hmm. to have this is natural for them, right? This is normal knowledge that isn't so revolutionary. Mm-hmm. But given that system that I don't remember the year that these two um, scientists... It was in the 70s. It was in the early yeah, 70s. Yeah, in the 70s. So, you know, like given mm-hmm. um, the the current educational structure structure there, and even now, I would say, you know, yeah. um, you know, what are what are mm-hmm. the ends? And I guess... I don't know. I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm struggling because I'm struggling with like, oh, did it have to be these two white guys that, you know, kind of yeah. gave quote unquote credibility to this. But then we have this, you know, this is a term that I heard from a colleague, collateral benefit um, was mm-hmm. the fact that then we oh, have, like we have uh, people coming in and building that connection back to the indigenous roots, back to those connections you see globally and giving mm-hmm. credit there and saying, you know what, it's not just like, this revolutionary thing. There have been people who have been doing this for hundreds of years and thousands of years. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the name that we know it now is permaculture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that what's different is, I think that what's different about it is that it also includes applied technology, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not just, sometimes people think that permaculture is agriculture, regenerative agriculture. It's not. It's because what I do in New York City is not agriculture. It's too small. Right. When I'm, but, and, and, and I think that it's also, yeah, I, I think it's tough because if we're talking about science, there's a method in science. You guys are both scientists. You know, there's a scientific method. There's a way to do research. There's a way to do data. All of this is how you get credibility for your research and work. That's what those guys did. They did the data. They did the research. They collected the data. They synthesized it. And then when originally when they started, what they were doing is they, they were teaching professional designers, agriculturists, engineers, architects. That's who they were training in the beginning. And then later it spread out. If you ever look at a curriculum for a permaculture design certificate course, which is a 72 hour intro course to becoming a designer. When you look at that, you see that it's pretty tactic and get really technical. So that's when you understand like who they were teaching it to originally. Um, what I do with kids is I'm going to give them what's age appropriate. So my mm-hmm. program will vary depending on who I'm talking to. But the philosoph- the philosophical backing is generally the same. Mm-hmm. Care sure. for the earth, care for people, design for abundance, be solutionaries, right? Design solutions. Let's have a solutions lens on these kinds mm-hmm. of things, which I think are really, really important mm-hmm. for sure. So um, I was just coming back to like, because you mentioned it again, like your programs and things. Um, this was like mm-hmm. the other idea <laughs> that I was thinking besides like the overwhelming, like, oh, why is this quote unquote credibility the thing? But the other thing is that you've mentioned multiple times now this programming and everything that you do. So mm-hmm. what, what we got like totally into the permaculture world, but let's back up yeah. a little bit and talk sure, about you sure. and what you do. <laughs> and like, so you're talking about sure. doing all these coursework and teaching. So how, how do you do that? Where do you do that? What? What sure. is everything so, you do? Yeah. Um, you, in my bio, you were talking about how, um, you were reading about where I'm from. So I'm originally from Chile. We moved to the United States when I was seven years old. I grew up in the Bible Belt, southeastern part of the U.S. As an adult, um, I spent time in New York and then I spent time for about 10 years is when I was eight of those. I was in Alaska. So I say all of this because I was like New York, Guatemala, Alaska, and then um, I did a lot of traveling in that time. And then I came back to New York in 2005. So 
when I started with permaculture in 07, I really missed my garden in Alaska. That was really something that had been a transformative experience for me. Um, and you know, Alaska's maybe not the easiest place to garden. So it was quite a learning experience for me. I mean, big time. And my tenacity is the only reason why I did not give up after my disastrous first year. But um, yeah, the second year I licked my wounds and my third year I came back armed with knowledge and compost, which is apparently what I was missing the whole time. So <laughs> I had a successful garden. Yeah. And then I moved back to New York and I was really missing feeling that connection. Uh, I found permaculture and found a wonderful small community at the time. Now it's much bigger. And I created uh, Beyond Organic Design in 2012 as a consulting business and then became a nonprofit in 2015. The basis of my work is the idea that I work with multiple, the education that I do is the way that I approach the programming that we do with children from pre-K to young adult. So that's three years old to 24 years old. It's with this idea that we all have multiple intelligences and that we learn and integrate and buy in more when we're presented informations that um, access all these intelligences. So we're talking about kinesthetic, which is the hands-on. We're talking about seeing something, hearing something, reading something, right? All these different things. So Gardner talks about that in his work, John Gardner. And then what's diff what can be different about this is that we, depending on where we are, we might still be in a school system that's very auditory focused, which is great for people like me, who if you hear something, you remember it. And that's a lot of how education has been for people. Just very lecture based, sit down, listen, regurgitate information. But most people don't have that as their strongest intelligence. Like most, a lot of people are, are need to do something with their hands and need to physically interact with something to really remember it. And one of the things that I loved about permaculture was it was at least it was very hands-on. So the work that we do is hands-on, experiential, and then catered to the age group. Mm -hmm. And I teach them design. And the way that I teach them design and the reason I teach them the design is because that's how they can apply the concepts that they're learning. I'll just give you a really simple example. If I'm working with pre-K, three, four, and five-year-olds, they might not know how to read very well yet. So we'll just use little pictures and we'll talk about plant families and we'll talk about how in nature plants will uh, support each other like family. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to have a tomato plant and you want your tomato plant to be happy and healthy, a great support for the tomato plant is a basil plant. So then I have a picture of a basil plant and the basil plant has have this great aroma, but you know, the bugs that like to eat plants, which are really only about 2% of bugs are the ones that will eat your plants. Most bugs are our friends and they help us. Obviously I say this very differently when I'm talking to young adults, but, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it, but you have your basil plant because bugs are led by their nose and the basil will confuse them. Mm -hmm. and, like, oh. and they said, and tomatoes need to be pollinated. So then we need to bring in flowers that will bring in our bee friends. So then we put in a picture of a flower, right? And we talk about how that happens and how they do it. So nature designs these plant families. Technically, it's called plant guilds. And, mm -hmm. um, and they support each other. And that's how I teach them design. Now, if I'm working with my, I call them big kids only because I'm 50. <laughs> if I'm working with my big kids who are like 20, 22, 24, you know, we just straight up talk about pollinators, plant guilds, uh, how to design like mother nature and, and go from there. 
And then I'm having them draw and make symbols for flowers, mm-hmm. for herbs, for all these things. And then we go into all the different ways that you can observe the permaculture design principles, which are based on how Mother Nature designs itself and how that looks like when you're designing in a garden. So I have the concepts. Design is my hands-on application for how they can internalize it. And then um, it's also about, we also do a lot of like problem solving where I say one of my favorite things to do is the design game. I come in, I'm the client and they're my design team. Mm. And I tell them what I want, the particulars of what I want. And when I do this with them, basically it, it guides them into doing a design that doesn't have, that's organic, that is uh, meeting the needs of all the other plants with other plants, that is addressing the needs for energy, waste, people access, right? Because anything that we design, we have to include people. We must include how people will interact with the space or else it's not a complete design because people always interact with nature. Mm-hmm. We have to prepare for them and, and talk about what are the needs of p- people? What are the needs of plants? So what I like about doing this as an urban context is in here in New York City, we don't really have a lot of open soil and we don't have, um, so we work with what we have. So what what is the open soil that we have? We have open soil around the tree pits in the tr- the square area of mm-hmm. open soil that's around tree pits. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. we have um, in the schools that I've worked with, we've adopted the tree pits around our school. And mm. I've taught them about soil science by we test the soil in the tree pits, which is atrocious. It's rock dust. And um, <laughs> okay. seriously, rock <laughs> dust and dog pee. That's about it. So that sounds about right. predictable. Yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah, know. So then what, what can we do with that? Then I'm like, great. Let's love up the trees. And again, my, my, my framing is going to depend on who I'm talking to. So we can, um, if I'm working with my youth or the high school students, I'm like, okay, we need to improve the soil quality. We need to improve the drainage, the nutrition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let's do a thick layer of compost. Let's um, mulch it and put stuff on, on it so it doesn't wash or blow away. Uh, let's monitor it. Once we start seeing more soil life, which are bugs, worms, whatever, we'll know that what we're doing is working. And then let's figure out what this tree is and what are the supporting plants that we can put in or how can we feed bees um, or urban wildlife, which would be bugs and bees included. What can we plant here? Let's research that. Let's find out what that is and let's put it in the ground. So it's this kind of way of saying we have nature in the city. Let's take care of, let's learn what it is how to take care of it. And then you, once you your consciousness is raised about something, you're, you are bought in and you want to protect it. And that's what I see consistently with the kids. They're like, Monica, that soil was dead. And at the end of the year, I just found a worm. And this is like a 14-year-old kid who's Aww. too cool for school. Mm. <laughs> and he's like, Monica, look, look, look. And I was like, oh, this is so awesome. <laughs> you know, we're all like ridiculously excited about it, right? But Children, when they're young, generally have a curiosity and an enthusiasm and um, and a joy when interacting with nature. Mm-hmm. And what I love about this work is that I get to create opportunities for that to possibly come back. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that. That is like the golden ticket right there. I love how you were when you were giving that example for your young, your little kids, your three. Oh, no, I, love them. I was, I was so like, good. I feel like that's for me because I'm understanding yeah, like this that. really well. And I got really excited. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like That's why more, I like to yeah. lead with that example, because it's really simple. I can obviously use a lot more technical language. But why? It's yeah, cute. it's fun. 
but it's yeah. true. I, like love, I, I love that. I love up the tree. Like, yeah. I want to love up trees. <laughs> I want to, hey, I call it the tree pit love project. That's what I call it. I keep going, Monica, great. to get something like better than that. But that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm loving yeah. every tree. City trees have such a hard time. I mm-hmm. love that. And I know you, you know, you mentioned um, New York as an urban center and using those tree pits to revive and um, get kids to get involved. Are there other environments that you've worked in that were also um, challenging in their own ways? Oh, yeah. Uh, Community gardens in New York City can be really, you have, once they're created, it's easier. But if you're trying to create one, we have a lot of soil contamination here. So they have to do a very thick layer. You can't plant directly in the soil. You usually have to put a very thick layer of black plastic and then put soil inside and then create like a a border around it, some kind of wooden frame. Mm. Um, So when you're working in New York City, the once you have the soil part of it taken care of, you're good and that you can start growing. But I think that from what I've seen from community gardens in the city, because we have so many buildings, light can be an issue. Uh, and then pests can be an issue. And in the city, that can be squirrels, that can be rats, it can be a lot of different things. So um, there's definitely challenges and conditions here for sure. And I've grown in different places. I also grew in the Catskills and we were we had to grow everything inside the greenhouse until early to mid-May because it was still snowing outside sometimes. So there's that. I remember when I lived in Guatemala, we had a huge problem with water trying to get water so water consciousness gardening and farming was big and um and that was also really big obviously when I was in Jordan and in Egypt and in Israel just all these different places that I've lived in where water is already we're very lucky in the northeast we don't generally have that problem but I definitely I was just in Baja California which is where I was working for two months doing a project there and that's when I met your friend Belinda Mm -hmm. and uh so for there like water conscious gardening was everything for sure. It's so interesting because I feel like um, 2020, one of the things I've become is a plant mom. So I've um, started growing plants and you can see some of them behind me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And just um, it's, it's nothing as nearly complicated as gardening. I mean, these plants are pretty low maintenance, but my mom loves plants. And the one thing that she always tells me, she's like, you got to learn how to read them. You got to learn. She's like, it's like growing your own baby. You learn how to read when they need you. You got to learn when to back off. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's just what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about, you know, if I ever expand to the gardening world and trying to grow my own food and vegetables. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I keep going back to that thing, how you're creating your plant family Mm -hmm. and building that connection. And, I love how you talked about that 14-year-old who's like, oh, my gosh, there's a worm in the pit. <laughs> yeah, his eyes got so big because <laughs> the soil was rock dust. Yeah. Then we put, like, that much compost on it, and then we covered it and left it. And then I came back, I, and we pulled it up, and there was creepy crawlies. There were ants. <laughs> there were roly-polies. There were worms. And the kids were just like – because it was a total transformation. Yeah. And all of a sudden, that soil that was, like, concrete hard – there was all of that soil life had created a soil that was so much more malleable and that was allowing water to go down to feed the roots of the trees. This is the problem. New York City, so, so, it's so rough. It's so <laughs> tough that water takes a long time to go down, to filter down through that soil. It's so hard. So we're doing a huge service by improving that soil. 
So what's your hope? Now you have you're working with so many kids and these mm-hmm. youth and they're learning all these different tools um, for themselves. And what's your hope for the future generations as you keep connecting with the youth? One of the things that moved me to start this work was question if children are to inherit the earth, are they ready? And I'm like, no, they're not ready. Let's see what I can do to help them get ready. And I don't, my intention is to grow conscious, informed, observant eco-citizens. When you were talking about observing your plants, observing is a big part of what we do. In order to design, you first learn how to observe because you need to be taking in all this information to do a good design, right? If you're designing a solution, and for us, uh, I say this the first day of class, we're all designers straight off the bat. We design our lives every day. Where do where, how we design our room, we design our wardrobe, we design a drawer. We're constantly figuring out where to place things. That is what we're doing here. We are going to learn the optimal placement for things. And these things we're talking about will be whether we're redesigning our classroom or whether we're, re- we're, we're figuring out what we're going to do with the tree pits outside of the school or what we're going to do in our rooftop garden. We are looking for optimal placement, but we're also looking for beneficial relationships. We want things to support each other and support the whole. You can take that and run with it in so many ways, right? If you're creating big picture thinkers, right now, the only people that are learning systems thinking are business people in the military. So like systems thinking is really important. And honestly, children are natural systems thinkers. They don't start to learn how to silo information until they're in middle school. But I've noticed when I'm working with elementary kids, middle school kids, high school kids, with the middle school and high school, I have to spend time bringing them back into that more open, step back, observant point of view so that we can create designs that are more likely to be successful in that way. So my hope is that they will take this with them wherever they go and this connection to environment is also a connect to me. It's also a connection to yourself. It's a connection. It's a reconnection to your senses. When you're in a garden, you're smelling, you're, you're, it's visual, you're, it's all of it. You're involving all of your senses. And I will often do exercises with them where I ask them to identify what their senses is bringing in, because that's part of being an observer. And when a child has grown kale, it's going to eat kale. When a child has grown a tomato, it's going to eat a tomato. We live in a world where having access to fresh food is not a given. And fresh food also spoils faster. Like we have parents, two parent um, households where everybody's working. It's a lot easier to have things be fresh or uh, instead of being fresh, having it be already packaged or in some sort of way. So a lot of times in, in cities, we are getting kids who don't have access to nature. Who don't have an, who don't have access to getting out of the city and going to other natural places, nature, what they think of as parks, who don't have maybe access to a lot of fresh food. That's why growing the gardens is so important. It's not only about connecting them to the cycles of nature. People don't protect what they don't know. Mm. So if we want our kids to protect the environment, they need to get to know the environment. And as the majority of our population lives in cities, programs like this are vital. You all know in global health that what people eat will determine their health. So we talk about that too in our classes because we also teach cooking. So the way we do it is art, cooking, uh, growing food, designing, 
and learning about sustainability and like sustainable practices. And um, it's really important for them to go to seed, to plant, to harvest, and then sometimes back to seed again, because um, it's having these understandings of all of these systems that I think will create more informed citizens. Because when we're looking at understanding that your dollar makes a difference in how you spend it, right? The wallet speaks. And also understanding that if you understand natural systems, then maybe, and how important, why regenerative agriculture and sustainable agriculture is not only just good for the land, it's good for the land, it's good for the animals, it's good for the people, and it has a longevity piece to it, unlike our regular corporate agriculture, which is really about getting the maximum profit without real consideration for the environmental impacts of it. Pumping chickens with... Yeah, you know, like whatever that. stuff they have. <laughs> yeah. So once yeah. we talk about these kinds of things and we talk about our food systems, they're just better informed. And we want more informed consumers, especially in New York City. We're 8 million strong. Can you imagine the buying power of this city? If all the children in New York City uh, who children were shown by data research shows that children will change the trajectory of their parents buying. Mm. So Monica, affect- question. Mm-hmm. Um, I so I can see the long term benefit very clearly, like it totally Mm -hmm. makes sense to me. Now I'm thinking about the beginning where you have to when you have to totally regenerate this rock solid soil in a tree pit Mm -hmm. and then you have to do a soil test and everything. And I might not. It seems and I could be totally wrong. It seems rather expensive. And so I guess if you can just shine some light on like what that process looks like financially. And also, I don't know, like what. What, what it means to do a soil test? Like, is there a lab or is there like a way that you do it that doesn't require a lab? Um, no, you yeah, can so do you a can soil. It, no, if you, if you want to do a soil jar test, just Google it, Pinterest. You just need a mason jar and a lid and oh, water okay. and soil. It's mm-hmm. not expensive. I think where expense comes in is if you're talking about compost and if you're buying it, then there's an expense. If you're creating mm-hmm. it in your school, if you mm-hmm. have a garden and you're creating it, then you're basically taking all of the, you're taking particular food waste and mixing it with browns like leaves. And then you're letting it sit there for a while. And then you have compost. Generally with programs that I'm involved in, they have funding from something, whether it's like, if you're in New York City, you know, Grow NYC or Grow to Learn or all these like Green Thumb, all these uh, city agencies give supplies to schools who are doing these kinds of projects. Mm-hmm. Makes sense to me. I'm like, what's the pipeline here in terms of how how your resources get to the kids themselves? I think mm-hmm. I think that it just depends on where you are. In New York yeah. City, we have um, community gardens and Green Thumb uh, manages them. Their version of the one for school is called Grow to Learn, and Grow to Learn gives all the supplies for any kinds of gardening that you want to create at your school. So that is okay. where we would get it from. Okay, that makes mm-hmm. sense. And it also sounds like. If you don't have those resources, you can do your own and make your own. So it t- it'll take longer, but it doesn't necessarily have to be like getting those resources from an external thing. You can make a lot of it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you can make is vermicompost, which is made with earthworms. And I love talking about worms. And earthworms are amazing <laughs> because they're a gardener's best friend. They uh, burrow and make those holes, which allow for oxygen and water to get through into the ground. Um, their poop is seven times more powerful than any man-made fertilizer. That is on my wow. test, ladies. I gave uh-huh. you the answer. 
And um, <laughs> I, do, I love telling my kids that. And then we bring earthworms in and then we have a vermicompost system. Uh, Lower East Side Ecology Center has been uh, doing great work in New York City for decades, uh, setting people up with vermicompost systems because that's a very apartment friendly kind of thing. And when you have all that compost, I tell people, if you have a vermicomposter, let us have your finished compost and we'll put it mm. in the tree pits. Hmm. You've taught me more about worms just than that than I've ever known. The only thing I knew about earthworms was that they had five hearts. <laughs> that's all. Oh my God. And they have no eyes. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. No oh, eyes and five they're hearts. They're amazing. They're amazing. So cool. So cool. <laughs> Learned so much it's about fun. them. <laughs> oh, well, and their bird food. Their bird food. I know that. <laughs> bird mm-hmm. food. That's cool. But I think that it's really important because soil is everything. And soil health will reflect the people health mm. oftentimes, right? And we grow healthy soil, the vegetables are a byproduct. That's what so I would say to them. When a soil is contaminated, because mm-hmm. you talked about that with community gardens in New York and you have to mm-hmm. put like this black tarp thing over it. Um, right. If you want to create yeah. like a container bed to grow food into. Right. Can you plant anything in a contaminated yes. soil? Can you? Yeah. Yeah. I love oh. this. It's called bioremedi <laughs> it's called bioremediation. Okay. And it's amazing. So my friends in Brooklyn, they planted sunflowers to pull the lead up. And they also planted spinach and some other greens. So they wait, they, hold on. Every- S- sunflowers pull the lead out uh-huh. of the soil. Yeah. Isn't huh. that cool? So I didn't think, know I'm that. trying to remember because I thought they were doing a partnership with like Brooklyn College or something. They were doing a partnership with somebody. And basically the idea is that plants can help you bioremediate contaminated soil and contaminated water, honestly. If you're talking about mm-hmm. um, petrochemicals and heavy metals, then yes. It'll take time. Uh-huh. I mean, I think that they were probably, they should be on their fifth year of doing it, but they were monitoring the lead levels oh, and it was wow. going down. Isn't that awesome? Paul Stamets. Paul Stamets is a mycologist. Uh, there's a movie out called Fungi Perfecti, but he's got an amazing <laughs> TED, TED talk called uh, How Mushrooms Can Save Civilization. And he showed how he used mycelium to break down an oil spill. Wow. And it broke it down and then created mushrooms. Plants are so yeah. cool. No, I know. <laughs> I, love I love plants. I think plants are amazing. And, you know, when I talk with my kids, one of the things I always say is and this is with the big kids too, like the young adults. It's just like plants and humans have grown up beside each other for all of time. They are a part of our DNA. We've only become a city dwellers in a relatively short amount of time in the history of civilization. So in a lot of ways, being agro our growing plants, our caring for plants, all of this is just part of who we are. Mm. What makes it hard is in cities we have to create those situations to happen. Mm-hmm. generally right a lot of new york city parks are covered and it's okay i mean it's understandable they're covered in concrete um they're because new york city parks um have to manage a lot of people coming through them mm-hmm. so but we just it's really important to create those opportunities but you know here's the other thing it's also really important to help people connect the dots i feel that for me i've been seeing patterns since i was a kid i connected the dots when if we talk about like public global health, I remember reading about poverty and poverty indicators as a kid and or like a younger person, maybe like 10, 11, 12 or whatever, and reading about 
and as I grew up, because I've always been interested in community and um, Chile, where, where we left, we left a dictatorship. We left pretty bad poverty. There was a lot going on back home. And I think I spent a lot of time trying to understand what I saw. And what I know is that health is connected to food, which is also connected to family systems, which is also connected to politics and economics and climate. It's all connected. And when I'm working with the kids, I really encourage them to see the connections and to design, create more beneficial connections, right? To know, see that we can make it better. We don't have to be, uh, let's make it less bad. Let's just design it better. Mm-hmm. And I think that that really appeals to them because they hear a lot of bad news. And what we're saying is let's be solutionaries. Let's make it better and, and be smart about it. Mm-hmm. People seeing the connections between everything is something that has to be fomented, but it's there. You know, you're just talking global health right now. I'm, yeah. You you asked us to define global health. I'm like, Monica, you're (laughs) defining it for us over here. You know, I, so I have, um, I guess I have a closing question, but Diana, if you have anything to follow up, go ahead. No, I think everything is that you're saying is so beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) No. I was, I was going to say for folks who are at home and still, you know, living through the pandemic mm. and if they're wanting to find these connections that you talked about and empower mm-hmm. themselves, what's an easy thing that anyone anywhere can do at home and start growing something? How about sprouts? Sprout some mung beans, sprout some alfalfa, get some alfalfa seeds and start making sprouts in your home. Sprouts are so nutritious. They're so good for you. And they're so fresh. Mm-hmm. If you want to start doing things at home, I think have, starting with houseplants is a really great way. Mm-hmm. I started with houseplants and then I learned from my farmer friends that I was meeting in Alaska. So many of them were from farmers, farming families. They started learning from them how to grow food. When I was little, I grew food with my grandmother that I grew up with. She had a big kitchen garden. We had chickens and I had good memories of that. So I think for people in urban cities, look up vermicomposting. Mm-hmm. We fill in New York City, we fill Yankee Stadium about four times a day with waste, food waste that could be composted mm-hmm. and given to street cheese. Right. So there's a lot of ways that you can make your life like feel a little bit maybe more sustainable, feel like you're making things good instead of just less bad. But mm-hmm. yeah, houseplants, sprouts, buy herbs, put them in your sunny window and mm-hmm. um, yeah, just learn more. Maybe volunteer at your local park, get your hands dirty. I am all for getting dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, Diana and I and another friend of ours. So it's not surprising most I don't know. I won't. I won't say most Asian, but um, a lot, lot of Koreans. Dana and I are Korean. Um, the easiest thing we do is spring onion. <laughs> oh yeah, that's galleon. Yeah, because um, when when we do our like Korean barbecue, it's a very like essential part of um, what's on the table. And so I remember like we had a little nub from one that we got at the market actually, and I was like, I'm gonna plant that. <laughs> We're just gonna grow our own spring onion. And so. Um, that was it was easy, but it, it did bring a little bit of joy. It, it was just funny. And then we started sending it pictures does. to each other like, hey, let me show you my spring onion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. I think it is a big part of Asian culture. Someone that um, I was dating last year is Chinese American. And I remember when we met, we spent a good hour talking about our vegetable gardens. And then oh. the next probably two hours talking about cooking mm-hmm. from our vegetable gardens. <laughs> 
you know? Nice. So yeah. I'm like, wow, this is an amazing date. I am so happy right now. <laughs> this, is, this is freaking awesome. But it was just really, it was really nice to have that, um, have it be just a part of the culture, right? Because mm -hmm. culture is really important to me. Have it be a part of the culture and have it be, um, and having like, the growing the food, but then the importance of food within the culture, right? Yeah. That was just such a nice, that was such a nice commonality for us. And I we also that. ate a lot of Korean barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the best part. <laughs> yeah, I know. We, we ate a lot of Asian food during that. Okay. It was really fun. Um, but yeah, I definitely, I think green onions is good. And also you can do things. You can, uh, I think um, if you follow us on Pinterest, I have so many amazing boards with all kinds of great ideas for things you can do in your house. So definitely that could be really interesting and helpful for you. And then, you know, people can always contact me. That's a great way to close. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, okay. Thank you, Monica, for thank giving you. us so much knowledge and um, encouragement. And like you said, if you want to contact Monica, it looks like you're everywhere. Um, you're on Facebook, <laughs> Beyond Organic Design, Twitter at Beyond Organic D for Design, Instagram, Beyond underscore organic underscore design. And you mentioned Pinterest, which we've never had before. What's your Pinterest? Yeah. I think it's Beyond Organic Design, actually. Okay. <laughs> so we just talked about all the ways you can contact Monica, but if you have any questions for us specifically, you can email us at globalcaveat at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter at globalcaveat. And thank you to all our listeners and supporters for helping this podcast run. And now you can get your tax deductibles. Um, yeah. And a special thanks to Cordell Glass, Hot Cocoa, for producing our music. Thank you so much for listening.